So it has been more than a month, nearly five or even six weeks since our last story and conversation. So uh, we're getting back at it. We've had a a very active um, period of time, the close of the summer and early fall. Coming into the center, we went up to the UP, which is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and hosted a retreat for some of our students. It was very nice, very beautiful uh, in the Upper Peninsula. It's like uh, one of the last vestiges of wilderness, uh, at least in Michigan. And then the abbot and myself spent some time in New York at a a Zen center in Ithaca, where uh, a monk and nun reside and are very good friends of, uh, of the abbots. And we just celebrated our 30th anniversary yesterday. So the Detroit Zen Center was founded October 17th, uh, 1990. So we thought it would be good to to get a podcast back out there, and I hope that you enjoy it. Um, This podcast is a story about the end of the life of Master Mangong, Mangong Sunim. So in the Korean Buddhist tradition, and really throughout all of Buddhist tradition, lineage is quite important, and lineage is also called family, spiritual family. So our lineage, our family here at the Detroit Zen Center, is through the the temple Sudoksa. So myself and our abbot Hwalsun are both monastics in the Sudoksa family. And our abbot's teacher, Wondam, when he was a young monk at 18 years old, he was the attendant, the kind of monastic caretaker, almost like the son of uh, his teacher, who was Master Mangong. So Mangong is our great-grandfather or great-grandteacher in this family. Mangong Sunim was quite famous and was known to be very eccentric. He taught, uh, and actually two of his Dharma successors were female uh, monastics, which was pretty unheard of in those days, especially for monks and nuns who typically study and train separately uh, to study under a great teacher and be given um, transmission. And he taught lay people, uh, and toward the end of his life, he grew his hair out and really eschewed some of the uh, the customs and traditions of Buddhism. Was quite a revolutionary mind. And practitioner, he's very well known for some of his encounters during the Jap- Japanese colonial period, during which time the Japanese were attempting to sort of destroy uh, Buddhism as a way to uh, uh, unravel um, the the Korean uh, sort of heart and mind in order to uh, you know c- 
be successful in their conquest of the Korean peninsula. So it was a strategy for them to occupy the temples and and sometimes even kill or imprison the, the abbots or the Zen masters. And so there are some very wonderful stories about Mangong standing up to uh, the Japanese occupiers. Uh, Mangong was said to have attained enlightenment at a young age while he studied under another famous teacher whose name was Kyung Ha. And he spent most of his life in teaching near Sudoksa, and the, the main mountain of Sudoksa is called Doksong San or Doksong Mountain. And most of his teaching in life took place at Chunghesa, which is a Zen uh, temple above Sudoksa. And that is also the place where our abbot trained during his time in Korea. And as he got toward the end of his life, he went up to the very top of the mountain where there's a, a small hermitage called Junwolam. And that is where he spent his final days in teaching and had been a monk at that point for 62 years. So he passed away on October 20th, 1946. He was born in 1871. So he was uh, nearly 80 years old when he died, and his death anniversary is two days from now. So I thought it was an appropriate time uh, to share this podcast with you, the, end, the, the anniversary of our own Zen Center and the, the death anniversary of our great-grand teacher, Mangong. So please enjoy. The title of this podcast is Mangong Looks in the Mirror. On the morning of October 20th, 1946, with Korea having gained its independence from Japan, Venerable Mangong Sunim changed into his cherished, worn-out robes after having had a bath. He stood at the mirror and said, Hey, you! I think it's about time we say goodbye. Ha ha ha! That's right, we've lived a long time, you and I. Right! Ha ha ha! We go on our separate way from here on. Having thus said goodbye to his reflection, Venerable Mangong Sunim walked slowly down to the nearby hermitage where the nuns were practicing. Oh, Venerable, please come in. The bhikkhuni Ilyup rose to invite the master in, at which Venerable Mangong Sunim declined. No, no, I'll just sit here for a while, then go. Have you got something to eat? I have some chestnuts, Sunim. Would you like me to peel them for you? Chestnuts, that sounds good. Mangong Sunim, after taking a few chestnuts that Venerable Ilyup had peeled, stood up to go. What delicious chestnuts! Continue on with your practice, even when I'm not around. You must work hard every day and gain liberation in this very lifetime. Do you understand? Yes, Master. Are you on your way somewhere? Yes, so I'll be on my way. Master Mangong left Kyunsungam Hermitage and soon reached Jungesa Temple, appearing a little exhausted. As soon as Master Mangong reached the temple, he called upon Venerable Chungsun, 
Chung Sun was the Ipsung or head monk as ordained by Mangong Gong Sunam, responsible for disciplining the practicing monks. <coughs> Such was the role of the head monk, directing, leading, and supervising the practitioners when the temple spiritual master was not present. Hey there, Chung Sung. Yes, master? You will remember what I told you from here on. You must take care of the Dharma teachings. Oh no, master, how could I dare to? Stop with the stubbornness. You just do as I taught you, understand? Who's in the abbot's room right now? Oh, no one. Having entered the abbot's room, Master Mangong Sunam asked Venerable Chung Sun for a wooden pillow. When Chung Sun brought the pillow, Venerable Mangong Sunam lay down and quietly called the monk once more. Hey there, Chung Sun. Yes, Master. As the wind is passing, I'll be going. Pardon, Sunam? What do you mean? Master, what do you mean? I'll be going today. Oh, Sunam, what are you saying? I'm just tucking you in for a good rest, Master. Here's the blanket. Master, are you asleep? Master! Master! The great Master Mangong entered into Parnavana as if he was asleep. It was 10 a.m., October 20th, 1946, according to the lunar calendar. Master Mangong Sunam was 76 by his secular age and had spent 62 years ordained as a monk. Okay. So Sunam, October 20th, is the day that Mangong Sunam died. That was in 1946? Correct. So you were um, almost six years old at that point. No, I had just turned five the month before. Mm. Oh, no, you're right. I just turned... I'd actually just turned six, so yeah. I, I, I was just one month into my sixth year. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a beautiful story and very beautiful story. 1946. Well, I think it, it reflects the kind of wisdom that uh, he possessed and that is possessed by you know, the great Zen teachers that this is just another day in your life and it happens to be the day where the life that you've been living is uh, due to end. And speaking from that older age, I can just say, we are aware uh, that our bodies are breaking down and that's the way that it works. So at some point, it, 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 I think it would feel pointless to go on and we don't know because Mangong would never complain about particularly difficulties, but I think we can conclude that he felt the timing was right in terms of he uh, 
went to see the nuns and he went back to Jung Asa and uh, he was he had completely uh, put himself in a hermitage now for a number of years where people could have visited him which no doubt he was doing the teaching with them and now it was concluding and it concluded in what I would describe as the most natural way that almost anybody would say well, I would love to lay down and have settled all my affairs mm. and just as if I'm going to sleep. Yeah. And um, I think that's the power of of uh, the wisdom that he possessed. Mm. And, and he's not alone. This is just one of the stories that, you know, that they've talked about because of his greatness in the 20th century. Yeah. That his senior disciple, Pyakcho Sunam, when he was named uh, the Pangjang Sunam, uh, he announced on that day that I'll be passing in three months. And to the day, he passed. And I think, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm speculating since I haven't passed yet, but he just recognized that he could basically pass when he completely lets go, which he was fully now capable of doing the same way that we let go of negative thought or negative feelings. Mm. He just let go of the thing that was now worn out. Mm. And in Pyokcho's case, he was nearing 90, and he, could, he hadn't been able to walk for years. So in these stories, there's probably out there uh, in the lore some stories about Pyokcho for sure. I can tell some, but the detail that, that the monks have in passing them on, especially my teacher, was extraordinary. Because like this, it's just encouraging that if somebody can actually pass that way yeah. and had been teaching their whole life, in a sense, you can too. Yeah, I've been at uh, the bedside of a couple of people who have died, and it's, it's such a contrast um, to not only what I've seen, but I think what most of us relate to uh, in terms of death, not only our own death, but the death of the people that we love. Um, there, there really is a lot of fear, and uh, fear of letting go. This morning, you were reading another book uh, when I came in to see you this morning for tea, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you said you read a passage to me. You said, you know, here, Youngjie, I'd like to read you something. And what you read was something along the lines of uh, that we are often more willing to reside in our boredom or in a kind of a uh, an uncomfortable state. Really, actually doing things that make us uncomfortable like eating poorly or you know continuing to participate in negative relationships and negative relationship patterns we're we're willing to do that because it's comfortable and we know it and we know what to expect rather than to move into new behaviors because of the fear change yeah yeah and, and you mentioned fear of the unknown yeah and so i wonder if you can maybe talk about how practice uh, or what is that, what is the mechanism or what is the tool that allows a human being 
to move into those realms of the unknown comfortably. Like Mangang Sunam, if I understand your teaching correctly in the teaching of Zen, he doesn't know what's going to happen after he takes his last breath. Well, as far as we know. Yeah, there isn't a rational... I think he knew in that case that he was going to go to sleep. Well, and right. He did. But and I he think just... in terms of an esoteric thing, Zen Buddhism doesn't really seem to present any particular teaching that this is what you can uh, this is what will happen oh to you. no of course not and so I wonder if you could talk about your own um, understanding and experience with how we can as a human being um, welcome even uh, the unknown well I think that um, the lever for change is the action itself. Could you say that again, Sunan? The lever of change is within the action itself. For example, okay. I don't have to find courage to talk to somebody that I've wronged and apologize. Hmm. I do it, and the courage will develop. That's like I think in Western mind, we wait. We want to wait for the courage. It doesn't work that way. I'll repeat again. Actions are the lever for change. Right. So, you, in other words, you do things that you haven't done before, mm. like apologize to somebody you've wronged, mm. because not only is it the right thing to do, but because it is how you change your life mm. through action, not through thinking. So I, what I hear you presenting there is something that has been quite familiar to me throughout my study with with you, but also within the Buddhist tradition, is this idea that we we don't follow our feelings, we we lead our minds. So if we want to, you know, transform our minds from negative states into positive states, or just just sort of pull ourselves out of delusional or negative thinking, for example. We don't do that by trying to control our mind or our emotions. Well, we lead that's through right. Behavior. And I think you have a perfect teaching for people. Okay. Um, over 25 years ago, hmm. when you had never put skis on the bottom of your feet, without saying anything, we got to... I think Iron Mountain in the UP. And I said, let's go skiing. And you said, okay. So we rented skis, rode up the lift. I taught you how to get on the lift and so forth and slide your feet. And then you got to the top and I don't remember exactly how I instructed you, but it was brief as it always is because I know that you need the experience to build confidence. Mm. So you literally slammed your stick down, said, I'm not going down this hill. And I said, okay. I did say, okay. And I skied away. <laughs> right. And now 20, I mean, it wasn't, but that it, you never did that again. <laughs> right. Like, and you skied that day. And when I asked you about it, you said, skiing is great. And then as I've watched you progress, um, now you are, I mean, I think most people that see you say, wow, she's a wonderful skier. Right. And it started with you acting 
not waiting to feel like, oh, I can go down this, because that day may never come. And, and right. somebody that does that, and I've literally taken people out that essentially won't go down the hill. Right. And they take their skis off and they walk down. Right. And to this day, they've never skied out of the fear of going down. I always put, put them on beginner slopes as right. gentle as possible. And I yeah. say to them, before they go down, I say, take a look at this. Right. Can, you think you can go down this? And they look and say, well, it's not much of a hill, Sunam. I said, no, it's gradual, but you can learn how to ski on this. Right. And so most people then are able to do that with the simplest of instruction. But some people that are fear-based or, or feeling-centered, which is what fear-based is, it's that you concentrate on how you feel before you do something. Mm. They don't ever learn how to ski. That's really interesting. So do you think that America is, Could do you think it's fair to describe American culture as a feeling-based culture? Oh, I think absolutely. And I think that the... My dying generation, we were, nobody gave a damn about our feelings, whether it was coaches or employers, or actually my own father. Mm. He didn't care how I felt when he scolded me for not shoveling the snow. He said, get out there and shovel the snow. Right. And I'm so grateful now in retrospect, I certainly wasn't grateful until I went out and started shoveling and, and. I, I forget, I forgot about all the headache that I'd given him and I felt a great sense of accomplishment even though my dad would never say anything to me. Mm. I knew now I had done something that he felt mm. that I ought to do and he'd done it for years. That's what I'd seen him. My dad was yeah. shoveling snow and I would watch him and sit inside a warm room, let my dad shovel snow and the first time that happened and my dad scolded me he felt I was old enough to get out there and shovel. Yeah. And so I did it, but everything changed. Like, I wouldn't say that I was feeling better or worse, but when I got done, I had a sense of satisfaction. Right. That's what I could say. You can't call it good or bad. And I, I wasn't trying to be satisfied. When I first started, I was probably annoyed carrying the shovel out there. You know how you dragged something. And then I started shoveling, and then I shoveled more, and pretty soon I kept shoveling right. and realizing the, the more I shovel, the quicker this is going to be over. But in the process, I get lost beside, beside myself in the shoveling. Which that the, then in Zen teaching is said, well, this is what you should do is try to lose yourself in these activities because those actions that you perform are where where the 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 change takes place not only in your disposition, but you get good at shoveling snow. Yeah, I mean, or whatever the skill is. Yeah. So it's twofold. You feel satisfied, but you've also done something that needed to be done. Right. Something that needed to be done. How many times we don't know what needs to be done, but if we just look around, right. we'll see that, did we leave dishes this morning? Is the right. floor been swept? Like there's always something to do. And that's the benefit of reality. Right. Reality comes to us and, and says, this is what needs to be done. Right. But how often we ignore it because it isn't in line with our feelings. I don't really want to clean the toilet. So I, that, I really relate to that. Um, and it's very, it's very easy to understand, you know, this teaching in a way, because it makes sense, you know, that you, and I think all of us in, as human beings have had the experience that once we do something that needs to be done, 
regardless of how we feel about it. You know, washing our dishes be before after you do eat. it. Yeah. Or you know, in my own case. I love, once I get into it, I just love organizing things. I think a lot of people do. And we just had a big rummage sale here this weekend. And it was it was great because, you know, you, you're decluttering and you're putting things out and you're getting rid of things that you really don't need anymore. And you get done and you feel great. It's very and simple. And you've, you've made a little money for the Zen Center. Yeah. And you've given, you know, people, our neighbors and, you know, have it's very functional. One thing that occurs to me is that I think that for a lot of people, it's really hard because we are a feeling-based culture. I agree with you. And I think that more and more what people are being conditioned to believe is that our feelings really do matter. And I see this happening definitely in the context of the Zen Center. And I really hope it doesn't sound like, you know, one of those things where it's like, well, when I was young, but... I can relate to what you're saying about your own generation and that when I see what's going on in the world, especially, you know, in America these days, it really does seem like people are being conditioned to believe that their feelings are very important. And I would include myself um, as being a person who grew up with that being emphasized more than, you know, say you when you were my age, when you were young. But the interesting thing that I know about your life is that your father is almost 70 years old and he's been going to the same job bright and early in the morning where his whole day is probably takes 12 hours to complete going to work working getting home and he does that in spite of how he's feeling and you've just described to me in the last while how much it's much pain he's in and he may have been in that pain for years before yeah. he even let you know about it he trusts you more now and he, he can share that with you but he, how long has he been have people been suffering and in in that generation but going on with their lives now that doesn't mean that in spite of what's wrong with you sometimes you have to get fixed but the point being that he hasn't relied on not feeling like going to work we we can why do we know that we just take a look at his track record. <laughs> he, he's there every day. So do you think that the the way I asked you a bit earlier, what is that mechanism? And you said it's the, you know, behavior is the lever of change. It's just exactly what your dad is doing. So if behavior is the lever of change, then is, you know, someone, someone say listening to this at home may understand that teaching and agree with it. But actually doing it again there's there seems to be this hang-up that even if you understand this teaching and you believe in this teaching because of the conditioning that very thick conditioning of following feelings not behavior how do how do we work with this well is there a simple way i was just explaining to someone the other day sooner or later you're going to have to recognize that either you can't or you won't do it on your own mm. and that you felt miserable long enough and now you're going to ask someone please teach me how to do that now in zen culture for example and i've said this to you before because i want you to this is what i want you to be teaching the people that come to the zen center is whether you come one hour a week or 10 hours a week whatever it is 
you're considered a full-time student during that period of time. Yeah. And a full-time student, it's designed, you listen to the leadership. That means anyone that has more seniority than you or somebody that's been assigned to, to lead you in something. Yeah. And that you give up your own idea and your own feelings about it, and you try to put all of your energy into it. Now, you're going to be, in, in a sense, you're being monitored. Yeah. And so that usually helps all of us. Like, certainly, uh, any Zen monk, if you looked at the scene that they're in, recognizes yeah. they're being monitored. Right. And as a result, they're able to make the changes. Now, why didn't they make it before they entered the temple? Well, they, 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 could, they couldn't for whatever reason. It doesn't really right. matter. Some people that maybe only become uh, close members, for example, of, of, of the temple, learn from the teachings and have the courage to try it at yeah. home. Like, am I washing my dishes when I get finished? One of the most basic teachings of Zen culture. Right. Or sweeping the floor. Right. Uh, just cleaning your toilet. Right. All the things that all of us have to do. Right. And if you're living alone, you have a myriad of things to do just to live your daily life, even not talking about your job. Right. You've got to cook your own meals. You've got to be responsible for everything. And if you resist all of it, then you do everything poorly and your life doesn't change. But the same action with you putting your energy into it and, and not being, oh, I don't want to do this, changes. And, well, you say, how can it happen? The, the harder it is for you to do, the closer you need to be to, for somebody that you trust to guide you in that regard. And not only guide you, but monitoring you. And not, this is the head monk. That's why Mangong Sunam was talking to the head monk. Yeah. He was telling him, this is how I want you to guide people. Yeah. Uh, that, that's your job as the yeah. head monk. So that's your job, Myung Ju Sunim, as the head nun here. Yeah. Like to guide people so that their actions, they lead with their actions, not their feelings or their thoughts about doing it. Oh, I don't want to do that. No, the, 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 the more senior disciples usually you're assigned the toughest jobs because their minds are now getting right. And if you have somebody that is just starting out, you mm. give them something simpler to do. It still may be something they resist, like washing dishes. Yeah. But if they continue to resist, nothing changes. But right. that's where the monitor steps in. Well, that's interesting. And I'd like to ask you something about that, if that's okay. Of course. Um, yeah. It, I think something that comes up for me, which I'm seeing now as we're talking about it, and I am prepared, I think, to give this up, is this idea that people should do this. <laughs> you know, and they're really, it, I think that I'm pretty stubborn, and it has taken me a long time to understand that people don't actually have to live lives that make them feel good. It's not really my job to worry about, about that. And in my own case, I didn't really come to Zen and take it up seriously until I got desperate enough to do whatever I needed to do to um, be happy and what I think about that is you know I'm very grateful but no one made me do it no one said hey you should go to the Zen Center in a way I couldn't be stopped I just want to caution you yeah and I, I and I'm cautioning myself at the same time okay like you just used the word happy right. what's the opposite of that unhappy unhappy so Something that's not quite as like there, there. 
it, it's some internal sense that we don't even need to put a word on. Yeah. Uh, I've used satisfied before, but then there's also unsatisfied. Right. But the point being, like, it doesn't matter. Mm. It only matters that you do it. Right. And see what happens over a period of time. It's not going to happen the first time you wash your own dish. It happens mm. slowly over time as you get in the habit of that action, which is totally correct. Anybody would go, thank you for washing the dishes. And you'll you'll get the benefit of that, but you can't be thinking, okay, I'm going to wash the dishes so I'll feel better. No, that's not it. You have to do the dishes because you may not feel better. Now, let me make one other point. The end of August, we took, the 10 of us went up to the UP. Mm-hmm. And to a person, they followed the instructions of getting a COVID test before they came up. They freely gave up their phones and agreed to be silent for 48 hours. And I would say from observing it and interviewing as many times as I did, they did great. And although maybe some people weren't honest about about it, uh, I know some people said it was really hard. And I would say to them, do you have, do you have a sense of anything like even accomplishment like you did something that maybe at the outset you thought am I going to be able to do this and there's a kind of well-being that comes out of this kind of action and I watched I mean they're 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 helping prepare meals they're fixing fires they're they're doing everything and without you know the the opportunity not to think about themselves in the process but just be part of a whole that's working in the same direction and it was beautiful like it's absolutely beautiful to me to see all those people in a range some people have been around for years other people hadn't been around for years and stepped in and did it that's the power of being together being monitored which you are in that situation and finding out i can do this like that was change. That was the lever of change. And you see what happened as a result. Suddenly there's people coming at six o'clock in the morning for practice that hadn't happened so much. It's what's possible. We we have to believe that we can do it. So I just try to take the words out that 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 have two meanings. Somehow we have to just get away from black and white and just, this is just what needs to be done. That's it. What do you mean by this? This is what needs to be done. Washing the dishes need to be done after you finish eating. But what would you say the big picture is there when you say this needs to be done? I did this. I accomplished this. No, I think that everybody can set up goals in their lives. It can be to become a doctor or to become a politician, whatever it is. And, but if we can't focus on that, so what we have to focus on is the process of getting ourselves where we want to go. And I've talked about that so many times. But people continually get tired of this. They want to get to what they're trying to accomplish. But they're less likely to get there if they're not giving their energy to what they're doing in the process. So you can see how that goes for people. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that you we should act, we should behave in the way that we want to become. And Well, I would say that the way that, we, that our nature is. Okay. For example, 
this I think I believe and I've believed a long time this to be true when people are sitting in meditation for example they're already enlightened it's not separate right we don't sit to get enlightened we sit because we are enlightened we wash our dishes because we are enlightened like we can't separate things or we split ourselves well this this helps me and reminds me of another central teaching of yours and i think within the buddhist tradition that when we are uh, aware when we come into the realization of our enlightenment then we take care of things in the human world because we are in a human body whether we desire to be free of it or not we're not we have a body we are subject to the laws of cause and effect and gravity and we have five senses and we have we have this situation it's our karma and so um, enlightened activity is to take care of things so washing the dishes after a meal is a very uh, simple way of caretaking but it's really important well listen you're absolutely right but you know I've used her name a number of times Mother Teresa was trained as a nun. Mm-hmm. No question that she was told exactly when and what to do until she learned it's important to do what needs to be done. It's incredible for me to think about the mind that decides there are people laying either one dead on the street of Calcutta or dying on the street of Calcutta. We owe both of them. The people that are already dead, we give them a proper send-off. We clean them up, we dress them, and we mm-hmm. give them a nice ceremony. The people are still alive, but even though they're going to die, we take in the worst of the worst. We do the same for them, and we provide for them love and care mm-hmm. until they're gone. Now, when you think of the evolution that took place, you see no reason why this woman wouldn't be and has been named a saint in the Catholic Church. Right. It doesn't matter who does that in whatever guise they're dressed in. Hmm. What a wonderful thing to have done. And if you can find any sense in there that she was doing it for herself, you have to go, really? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like yeah. the dirtiest job that a human being could come up with, in a sense. And she did it with love and care and trained others to do the same. Such a wonderful and her, example. And her, fi- her final, one of her final, well, I think it was the only interview she ever did. Her final instruction she was asked to her nuns was, when she was near dying, was, let the people eat you, the sacrament. Body and blood of Christ, let the people eat you. Mm. Wow, become the sacrament. She must have been really something. Oh, Sunam, that's really a beautiful, it's a beautiful image. You know, we're, as we're about to wrap this, this podcast and conversation up, I wonder if, you know, for a lot of us, if we hear that story, it's very inspiring. And then sometimes the thought appears, well, I'm nothing like that. You know, I can't ever become like that. I have 
bills to pay and I have a career and I have a mortgage. So yeah, I think I meet a lot of people here at the center that come through and really feel overwhelmed by their yeah. situation. And I wonder if you could give some practical advice right. to us about how to move in that direction. I'm overwhelmed by Mother Teresa. Yeah. I don't think I could ever become Mother Teresa, but I'm not going to let that stop me hmm. from doing what needs to be done with every breath that I've got. That's the teaching that comes out of that for me. No, I don't have to do that. But can I wash my dishes? Yeah. Can I take care of the place that I live in? Yeah. Those are the things that are immediate. Then can I take care of my family? So Can I take care of my animals? Yeah. Can I take care of what I'm capable of taking care of? Yeah. And in her case, it got broader and broader until she was taking care of people that no one else was taking care of. That's beautiful, Sunan. So I hear what I hear you saying is... I'm one of those people. That's what I'm saying. You're saying work with, work within. We have to work within our capacity, and that's noble, and that's that's good enough. But action leads to change. Yes, it does. Well, thank you again for your time, Sun. It's really been a wonderful. Thank you podcast. for your time, Young Jusun. Okay. Have a nice rainy day. We canceled our morning meditation walk at the historic Elmwood Cemetery this morning because of the rain, and instead, uh, Sunam suggested we do this podcast uh, on uh, Ban Gong's death. Thank you.